Hi, welcome to the first episode of TASA's Inspiring Leaders podcast. Today, we're going to visit with Jill Seiler from Gunter ISD as she walks us through the process she used to establish instructional continuity for her district of just a little over a thousand students. We're going to hear from Thought Exchange partner Laura Milne on some best practices for community engagement during this time of pandemic. And we're going to hear from Charles Dupree, superintendent of Fort Bend ISD, about the importance of equity when thinking of instructional continuity. First, let's hear from Executive Director Kevin Brown. Hello to my TASA friends. I hope all of you are doing well. I just want you to know how much I'm thinking about you as we go through these incredibly trying times. Uh, We are here to support you in any way that we can. And one of the ways that we feel like we can support you is to connect you to each other. Um, There are so many inspiring stories that are going on around the state of Texas in public schools. And uh, much of that is due to the incredible leadership uh, that you have in your school districts and your communities with your teachers. Uh, It's really pretty awe-inspiring. So I want to thank you for all of that. Uh, and really showing your strengths as a leader. One of the ways we feel like we can connect you to each other is through a series of podcasts, uh, kind of dealing with some of the issues that we're facing right now. Um, And one of those uh, relates to instructional continuity planning. And so this podcast and some of the others that we're going to have down the road will relate to issues that are facing you currently, trying to highlight some of the great work that our people are doing And we hope that you'll follow up with them if you have questions or follow up with us if you have any. The other thing I'd ask is if you have great ideas and you feel like you need to share them with us, please let us know that. Go to our website. Uh, You can email me or call me um, or Brandon and Eric. uh, And that information will be forthcoming. Thanks for all the incredible work you're doing. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Uh, and just keep on grinding away, folks. Uh, You are not alone in this. We're all in this together, and we're going to get through it together. Uh, So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Kevin. With the sudden closure of schools across the state, how can districts make sure that student learning doesn't stop as quickly as the pandemic started? Small districts are in particularly difficult circumstances. Those under 5,000 students make up 81% of the state. Jill Seiler's district, Gunter ISD, is one of them. She only has about 1,000 students in a system north of Dallas, and she's been in Gunter since 2012. She's been an important part of our school transformation work, and she leads design teams for our Future Ready Superintendents Leadership Network, was part of the TASA 2025 Task Force, and she spearheaded the redesign for our aspiring Superintendents Academy from last midwinter. Jill joined us via WebEx for this interview. Jill Seiler, Thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leaders podcast. You're our first superintendent, and uh, we're, we're excited to have you here. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. A little nervous that I'm your first guest, but appreciate the invite. You know, we, we wanted to get in touch with you because we wanted to hear um, really about the experience of you know, some of these small districts who don't have near the support that um, you know, some of the, the larger you know, suburban and, and urban districts have. Can you describe your thought process of how you were going to transition remote learning in your district? 
we had some big advantages and we had some big disadvantages too. A huge advantage for us was that we had that early spring break. And so I feel like we got a jump start. I had a week with my leadership team to really start thinking through some of those processes without anyone around. And then we extended our spring break for a week. We didn't have kids. And so I had just my teachers for the whole week without kids. And that preparation time was key. The disadvantage that we had was that we're small, we're remote, we are not particularly tech savvy, we're not one-to-one. While our teachers are doing great things and there are some pockets of that knowledge, we do not have system-wide knowledge um, around how to make this work. And so that was a huge disadvantage to us. Um, we We knew we needed to be thoughtful about it and we knew that our transition needed to be slow. Um, And so, for instance, we had that week with no kids that was important to start layering professional development. We did a week of low tech where we handed out packets and that week was critical because we got another week with our teachers because our kids had stuff to do. They could connect, but that that contact was minimal. And then from that point, how do we roll out uh, a viable remote learning platform? And that's what we did. Well, let's talk about that that kind of viable remote learning platform. Can you tell us a little bit about um, kind of the at-home instructional model that you've chosen for your students? Yeah, so the first thing we had to do before we could even get there was to figure out what our students had. And and we went about that in a pretty systematic process. But the very first step that we took was our Monday's mission to contact every kid. And so we preloaded a Google sheet with some student information and then asked our teachers to walk through a script of, of talking with our kids, not only to connect and see how they were doing, but also to find out what they had and what they needed so that we could equip those needs for the long term. And so this was just kind of our script we went through and, you know, check in, see how they're doing, and then ask about internet. Just not, do you have it or do you not? Like, it's more than, can you access a website from your cell phone? Do you have a data plan? So we tried to dig into that a little bit. And then we started asking about devices. And again, getting really specific, what do you have? How many do you have? Knowing that everyone was going to be forced to the home, we knew it couldn't just be a family computer. Does every single child have something that they can use? And is it the right kind of equipment? And if not, let us equip that for you. And so we asked about food and some other needs that we had, but that was really important. And we we shared that on a, a common um, uh, Google sheet. This is just kind of an example, but all of our staff entered this information. We came back to this sheet over and over again in terms of who needed food, who needed internet hotspot delivery. And then we started that process of um, ordering and deploying um, those things. And so that was really key for us. I'd also say too, that it wasn't just getting those student needs, it was getting the staff needs also because we needed to know of our staff who who has good internet connectivity. Um, One of the things we did was we didn't have enough internet hotspots. We, we barely had enough for our families. Um, we knew we didn't have enough for students and staff because there was such a backlog on those orders. And so I went to my board and, and asked them, can I do a temporary internet stipend for all of my staff, knowing that we're asking them to do things we wouldn't normally, and I can't equip them with a hotspot right now. That backlog's too too much. And so let me just give you a little bit of funding to help you upgrade your internet or get the connectivity that you're going to need follow-up to that, what, what did you learn about your, your student capacity and your, your staff capacity? I mean, was uh, internet connectivity as widespread as what I think some assume? 
we had been collecting information along. We kind of knew what our target base was, which was about 25 to 30% of our students did not have internet access. But remember too, that a lot of them are coupled with families. And so when it really came down to it, the number of families that we needed to hit was a lot less than we had anticipated. I noticed that you're asking some really great questions about you know, shared access and exactly what it means to have access. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the decisions you made or the tone that you were striving for? Um, what did you want students to hear from you? When, when our state governor came out and made that decision over closure, obviously that made our decision easy. As we get longer into this, um, our students and their UIL activities and their prom and their graduation, their senior year, um, all of that is so important. And so I think the most important thing is just to acknowledge that. Um, just to say, hey, we know that this is a really difficult time, and then to try and clarify in your communication, um, why are we doing this? How we're trying to help the greater good of our entire nation uh, in the world, you know, overcome this pandemic. We have limited uh, central office, um, to say the least. I mean, how many positions do you actually have in <laughs> as central office? Are you it? Or do you no, I have, I have more people. I have a great assistant superintendent, a curriculum director, and a tech director. And so, um, but really in this scenario, I mean, it, it's all hands on deck and people doing some different things. My curriculum director is out delivering food today. Um, and that's not normally her job description. So in terms of how we manage this, just from being a small district, I'd say a couple things. The first was reaching out to others. One of the things that I love the most about the TASA organization is just the camaraderie amongst its members um, and how we draw on, on each other. One of the earliest calls we made was to Alamo Heights. Um, they had the later spring break, and, and so they hadn't quite gotten to the, the deployment yet, but just started asking them, what, what are you thinking about it? And they shared with me some documents or early, early drafts. And things. one of the things that they shared with us was the um, American school in Japan. I just looked at this and thought, wow, you know, this is interesting in terms of a one point of contact for our places to go. And the interesting thing about this, when you click into like first grade and you go into a, a specific teacher, all these folks are doing is using the Google slide uh, template to house the instruction. And so you would look on here, here's their class. They're going to load a quick uh, announcement of their teacher so their kids see that content. Um, they might celebrate a birthday. And then we're going to go through and, and for reading. And it tells you it's going to take about 20 to 25 minutes. Here's our learning target. Step one, you're going to watch the video. Step two, you're going to do this. And this was really appealing to us. Um, one of the things that we struggled with when, when you think about learning management systems, for example, this is our Google Classroom, which we use for high school. Um, this was one of the things that we weighed. Should we use this for our middle school? Should we use this for our upper level elementary schools that are already have this tool and use it to some degree with their students? For those younger students to have to go through every single class and click in every single one of these Google Classrooms to find out what is it that I'm supposed to do today, we knew that that was going to be a challenge. And so um, we started thinking uh, differently about what this was going to look like and, and learning from Alamo Heights about this American school in Japan was part of it. The other piece that I would say that was critical for us was just the layering of PD. We looked at professional development from a layering perspective. We, we normally would say, hey, we're doing a full day of professional development around technology, uh, or hey, go into this Google Classroom and complete this whole Google class of technology. Yeah. And so what we started to think about was what are the small pieces that teachers need is building blocks to get them where we ultimately want them to go. And so every day they had a task. 
One day it was open up a Zoom account in Zoom with a colleague. The next day, um, figure out how to record a Zoom session because it's an easy way to post an announcement on a class. Day three, start a YouTube channel. So every single day we started to, to layer that professional development and that was uh, really important for us. And then the last thing I'd mentioned just in terms of us being small, we really leveraged some other folks out there. One of the groups that we worked with was Lead Forward, um, great resource for teachers and leaders, but they launched um, a school at home resource and not only some great thought pieces around how do you do schedules and how do you build teacher capacity, but they took what we had shared with them from that American school in Japan and they pre-created Google site templates and Google slide templates that we could then take and turn into our own. We probably built this in about 90 minutes, and there's no way we could have done that without leveraging other people's resources. We created this single point of contact. We did this for K-8, knowing our high schools are still using Google Classroom. But when you log in, like let's say, for instance, we're going to go to second grade, and here's my second grade awesome teachers. They have a shared page. All the team works together. And so, for instance, in, in this grade level, here's the math. We're going to watch this video it happens to be on uh, telling time with skip counting and complete this part low tech in your book. And then, you know, go to this website to practice again, a single point of contact for our families to be able to access the learning. And so we really felt that was important um, for, for our folks. Would you consider this kind of synchronous learning? Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, and one of the things that great conversations that came from our Alamo Heights friends was that difference between synchronous learning. We're all doing this at the same time together versus asynchronous, which you're doing it on your own time. So what we wanted to find was friendly ground. Um, and I'll say that our Zoom schedule changed a, a million times between uh, when we launched it and, <laughs> and when we were planning for it. But that was really important. And what we decided was we wanted that opportunity for connection we wanted that opportunity for teachers to create community, but we also know that our families are in such unique times right now, and they might not be able to Zoom at the time that we have it scheduled. So we have some ways to support that also, but we didn't want to overwhelm. Baby steps, take it slow. Those were some of the things that we thought about in our planning. The high school, like uh, you said, they were already using Google Classroom. The beautiful thing, by the way, about our forward-facing platform for K-8 is those teachers are still using Google Classroom on the back end and just linking specific assignments into this forward-facing spot. And so they get to use both and that's seamless, which is great. For high school, um, they are using Google Classroom and we just had to do some training on how do you make it more manageable? Like if kids are having to, to work through seven or eight Google Classrooms, how can they log in? And so talking to teachers about, let's just rename it instead of, you know, eight point three, such and such, like how about Monday, March 30th, and then step one, step two, step three within that Google Classroom assignment, trying to help them think through what are some ways we can make this easier for kids to access the learning. There's some bright spots that you've noticed, and have you seen any responses from students that have, have delighted you? Is there any learning that's really come from them as a surprise? Our teachers are incredible. I'm sure you have seen, and if I'm, it's on my website as well, but the, the statement, one of the school board members in South Carolina, Ken Buck, talked about like what we asked teachers to do was unbelievable. Uh, we asked them to accomplish in a matter of days what we would normally have taken months. Like, Eric, if you would have said, hey, Jill, I want you to start a remote school in Gunner, I would have said, great. Talk to me in six months. That's how long it's going to take us to ramp up. And we did this in days. Our teachers are amazing. And what they've done to make this work for their kids is just unbelievable. But it's not just the teachers. Um, I mean, it's our principals delivering foods and organizing parades through the neighborhood. Um, it's our food services 
folks who are putting themselves on the front line and delivering food every single day to our kids. It's the bus drivers who are delivering everything and anything we ask them to deliver today. It's hotspots. You know, last week it was materials. And so it's all of those people within the system. And in terms of our students, um, A, I would say that just the, the maturity that we've seen from our seniors um, and understanding that this is uh, not a great situation, but then finding ways to make uh, unique, awesome ways to celebrate it too. Uh, some of our coaches have been putting out, uh, you know, just physical activity for their students. Our softball coach had a daily challenge. And so I get to see my students post their daily challenges on Twitter um, from teaching a sibling how to do a specific workout to, um, you know, all sorts of things. So there's been bright spots, but again, we were a slow roll. We did a low tech to high tech and, and we, we made that transition. But yesterday, just to see Facebook full of, um, yes, some frustrations of trying to get things up and running and figure out how to use Zoom, but the smiles and the connections in the community, um, that's what this is all about, is trying to help kids not just learn the content. It's always been more than that. And I think that this situation is just bringing that to light. How did you keep your community informed as this pandemic unfolded? And again, unfolded in a way that is, is not easy to see. So the communication structures that we have in place, like never more important than in a moment of crisis. And so for our families, they know exactly what that looks like in terms of, um, you know, weekly emails, maybe every other day emails at some point during this time, um, using social media, using our website. It's really been about leveraging communication. And so, for instance, when the DFW schools made their first announcement uh, Plano ISD took the lead with communications and then shared that out with everyone else. And we used a similar format. We're getting ready to announce our next uh, extension in Denison ISD and in my county um, took the lead on creating that. And so it's finding ways to leverage and use resources smartly for small schools that necessarily don't necessarily have that. I think for people to hear your voice, though, is really important. Um, and so whenever I'm trying to communicate, it's always, you know, having that line of, of just being transparent and authentic. Um, but still sharing what what folks need to know and, and finding that um, just that voice that they need to hear from you as the leader. What is weighing heavily on your mind at this juncture? What do you worry about in regards to student learning? And uh, anything you've worried about come initially that maybe turned out a little smoother than you thought it, it, it was going to go? Yeah, so I'll start with that smoother than I thought it was going to go first. Sure. Say that on March 12th, you know, we started dealing with this on March 10th and a couple of days later was the first time I kind of saw what an end result might look like, like that ASIJ website. And I thought to myself, like, there's no way, like, we just don't have the capacity within us to do that. Um, and we had the capacity within us to do that. And that's been just incredible to see. Um, weighing on my mind, the same kids who struggled before are still struggling uh, and even more so. And how do we reach them? How do we um, not have gaps form in the learning? How do we put ourselves in a place where next fall we don't come back and teachers are going, oh my gosh, um, how, how do we recover from this? And so I think that that's important too. I'd also say just mental health weighs on my mind um, of our students. Uh, as much as kids say, especially our older kids, um, you know, that, that they don't like school or whatever, they really do. Um, and especially the social contact and the structure within that. And so concerned about that, I'm concerned just mental health for our educators as well across the state. 
Um, this is a lot to ask them to do. And we're taking them out of their wheelhouse of I know how to teach in my classroom and be effective in that to an online learning environment, which looks and feels different in skills that they may or may not be equipped to do. And so trying to encourage and support them and, and, and help them see that the same things that made them a great teacher in the classroom are going to be the same things that make them a great teacher in this online learning environment. It's their heart. It's the fact that they care. It's how they connect with kids and create community. Jill, thank you so much for being here with us today. I appreciate being here. Thanks again, Jill. My next guest is Laura Miller, Thought Exchange. She works with districts across the state of Texas to engage in authentic conversations with parents and other community stakeholders. Laura Milne, welcome to the Inspiring Leaders podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm, I'm really excited about this podcast. <laughs> we're doing some really uh, fun things with y'all. I know we're, we're hosting some virtual events and it's a way that we're able to connect with our members. And you've been supporting municipalities and school districts across the continent because <laughs> you guys are in Canada right now. Right? Well, when, when there's no global pandemic, I'm, I probably spend about close to 30% of my time in Texas, but yeah, we're based in Canada. We work with districts across the country. We work with organizations across the world. The ability to collaborate remotely. I mean, we're kind of doing that right now and our exchange platform does that as well, but the ability to collaborate remotely is the currency right now for organizations. And that's not just school districts or communities. It's, you know, corporate entities, like every type of organization, but the, the ability to kind of connect remotely and collaborate virtually um, will, I think, dictate how organizations and communities weather this pandemic. Can you share some of the best practices for community engagement that you've learned over the past few weeks in dealing with this crisis? I think asking questions that really tap into the narrative um, that's in, in communities right now around COVID-19, as opposed to what should we do? You know, like saying what should we do about blank is, is actually a scary question to ask anyways, because you're going to get a laundry list of people saying you should do this, this, this. Now I expect you to do this, 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 but sort of moving play, people into a place of like considerations and perspectives and, and where are you at and what are you struggling with? Um, it's, it means you're not getting the cart before the horse. You're not asking for solutions before you actually really understand the complexity of the challenges. Because there are no answers right now, right? Like we're listening to our local governments, we're listening to our municipalities, we're doing the right things, um, you know, when it comes to social distancing and shelter in place and all of these different things. But, um, but tapping into the narrative around like what, what's actually going on for you in your, your own social location in my community or in my organization. There's a lot of research and I'm sure you're familiar with like the concept of fair process, which sort of says that like, you know, people are more likely to get behind a decision or a direction that, that an organization is going or a community is going if they feel that they've been transparently consulted along the way. If they feel that they were fairly engaged and asked for their thoughts and opinions, they're, they're more likely to be okay with whatever the outcome is, even if it's not something that they necessarily wanted. People really need to feel like they're being heard here, like they're not just getting information one way um, you know, we're filling out comment forms or a survey about what we should do, but like really that their voice is truly heard. Can you give us some examples of people who've done it really well? Uh, that's, that's great. So, so there is this kind of collective vulnerability that I think is giving leaders an opportunity to drop their guard a little bit and say like, you know, 
I'm here. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to hold the space, but I don't know what the heck is really going on here. Just like you don't. I talk a lot about trust equity and, you know, what, what is trust equity? It's, it's, not, it's kind of like the idea of equity. Is it something that you're banking? Right. It's something that you're banking over time with your stakeholders, your constituents, your community, so that when crisis like this does come up, you've already got some trust equity to, to draw on. Um, and we work with a number of superintendents in Texas, actually, who, who use that kind of language. Quentin Shepard in Victoria ISD has given me great language around this. He's like, I don't want buy-in. I want ownership. I want people to take ownership of this district with me. I want them to take ownership of our culture, of our community. Going to his website at Victoria uh, ISD, he has done a really interesting job of getting out early um, to communicate and start these discussions with, with um, his community about COVID-19. Um, how, how, do you in, how do you help a leader ensure they're engaging a proportional representation of their community, that they're getting, they're not getting just the usual suspects, that they are getting the people who uh, have something to say and, and really need to communicate at, at this time? That's the biggest challenge for all leaders is like, how do I lead for everyone? Um, how do I, there's always the loudest voice in the room and, and people are like, oh, the loudest voice in the room. And I'm like, well, no, the loudest voice in the room is still important because that loudest voice might reflect the, the needs and the, and the perspective of a lot of people, but it also might not. Right. So how do you cast the net wide enough so that everyone's included? I've seen in our, in our events, people who don't actually write down a comment. But they go straight to the thoughts of others and they start uh, rating them, you know, and then giving them the five stars or the one star. There's this additional layer to community engagement that getting input from your community is great, but they also need to hear from one another, right? And, and I think that that's important for a couple of different reasons. First of all, to, so people are exposed to other ideas and perspectives, right? So they're not just hearing from their neighbor on this side and their neighbor on that side and their best friend across the street, but they're actually in a space where they can virtually now, <laughs> in a virtual space where they can hear from other people in an equitable way. So it doesn't become just this echo chamber. Um, they may not change their mind. They may still have their very strong opinion on something, but knowing that there are all these other opinions out there and all of these perspectives and being able to consider those, I think is a really important element of community engagement as well, because then people can calibrate where they're at with the rest of the group. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for joining our podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited about this podcast series. So thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. I think we can all agree that Houston has had its fair share of heartache. About two and a half years ago, they had Hurricane Harvey, and Fort Bend County was one of the first places in Texas to experience community spread of COVID-19. Charles Dupree, Fort Bend ISD superintendent, has been at the helm for both disasters, leading his 76,000 students into 80 campuses through this transition to online learning. How do you establish equity in a system so large? Charles Dupree been an executive committee member at TASA, who is this year's legislative chair, and is our newly elected vice president. Like Jill, he's an important part of our school transformation work. He's part of our Future Ready Superintendents Leadership Network, and it was one of the original members of the Texas Public Accountability Consortium, or TPAC. Charles joined us via WebEx for this interview. Charles Dupree, welcome to the Inspiring Leaders Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Eric, how are you? It's good to see you, and thank you for having me. We're doing well here. We're, we're kind of looking at the difference between these large 
um, suburban systems and the uh, smaller systems when it comes to this instructional continuity plan. So can you, can you start off by just giving us a quick overview of the uh, at-home instructional model that Fort Bend chose for its students and how the approaches for elementary, middle school, and high school have differed in that implementation? Yes, so we went to work and we developed, as most other districts, an online delivery model. We're doing it, um, we're using Schoology, our learning management system, to, to deliver content to students. And then we're using Zoom or Microsoft Teams to have one-on-one -on -one in our small group engagement and classroom engagement with students. So basically the terminology we're using in our district and, and teaching our parents is asynchronous versus synchronous learning. You know, we hear a lot of those terms in professional development world and education, but we've had to educate our students and our parents what that actually means, as well as many of our teachers. So in the asynchronous way, we're using Schoology to deliver videos, podcasts, written materials, assignments, anything, written work, um, worksheets that students need to engage with. And then teachers are, they're collecting that. But the good thing is for our families, they can engage with it on their own schedule. That was really intentional because we wanted students to be able to do work because we know many of the homes might have multiple students as well as mom and dad having to work from home, maybe using only one device. And so we wanted as much flexibility on, on the, the family side as possible. But then on a daily basis, our teachers are synchronously engaging with office hours, um, small group instruction for reinforcement of work, to assess work, as well as they're engaging their whole class at times too in class conversations and direct delivery on assigned basis is that, that is well scheduled in advance. What were the concerns that you were hearing back from parents and community members about um, you know, the, the student instruction component of this work? Um, we have been able to use videos on a regular basis to be able to get right into the homes and hearts, if you will, of our, of our staff and of our parents. So we do, we've done a video about every other day just to let them know what is going on. And we're receiving amazing feedback from that. Of course, we're using some of the more common strategies. We're using um, the Blackboard delivery message method to be able to send emails and text message and call outs to parents on the more critical issues. I will tell you the probably the most common concern we've heard from our community, though, has been they felt like we were not moving quickly enough to get kids learning again. Um, you know, we have a very, very diverse school district with nearly 80,000 students. And I always talk about, you know, we have the richest of the rich, the poorest of the poor, and we have many families who were ready to jump right in with learning on day one as soon as we close schools. Uh, the parents are seeing activities in other districts assuming that is online learning based on the terminology that those districts use, when really it's online engagement, which we've been doing all along as well with a website for educational activities but now we're re really getting into the curriculum and advancing learning according to what our, our district goals and objectives are. So having a district that has kind of a wide disparity, disparity between you know, the haves and the have-nots, um, what have you uh, done to kind of address the equity of internet availability, technological access? Sure. So equity has been part of our conversation from day one which is why we took two weeks to plan our approach. So for us, that means um, everything from making sure the curriculum and lesson planning 
is done at an organizational level and pushed to the teachers for implementation. And of course, all of our teachers will be able to, to use their gift and their magic of teaching to bring it to life for their students in unique ways like they do any other day. But what has not changed is the what remains the same. We have focused on the readiness standards to make sure we're hitting the high priority items for our kiddos in this online environment. Um, but the how of, how of what we're teaching has not changed. We still want teachers to use their best skill set. Now, of course, then you do, as you mentioned, Eric, you've got the technical gaps as well. So actually today, um, we're starting our laptop drop in Fort Bend ISD. And it's been a remarkable um, cross-interdepartmental um, system where we're loading carts of laptops that have been prepackaged and pre-prepared onto school buses. And we have routed those buses to the individual homes of students who need those devices. So many of our students are getting a laptop. Many are also getting hotspots that we have purchased. And the bus is going to pull up to their house. The parent steps up with their driver's license. Um, it's going to be scanned just for accountability purposes. The devices will be placed on a step. The door will open. They pick it up. The door closes. It's like a vending machine for technology on wheels. And so our, we've, I'm very proud of our efforts because we're maintaining social distancing while meeting the needs of our students. So that was a big step forward for us to be able to address that need. Being in a large district, it's so difficult to have continuity of learning across all these different campuses, across different zones. So the, the curriculum part where you're, you're trying to kind of maintain um, the fidelity to the learning what are some things that you've done to help uh, campuses with the pacing uh, of this new online learning? So the good news is pacing was already, you know, that was a key part of the curriculum that we already provide our teachers. And so what we've done, this is where our curriculum coordinators have worked very diligently. They're basically producing a week at a glance document for every teacher in the district. It's also going to be available to parents because we know we have many teachers who might try to do a whole lot because they believe they have the ability or the kids have the ability. But equity, as we mentioned before, is really our highest priority right now. Because even on our best day, when school is in session, we are navigating issues of equitability. The other reason that's really important, you know, equity certainly from the teaching and learning perspective, but we have parents that are in a broad variety of positions right now. Um, some are unemployed, some are working harder than they've ever worked, um, and, you know, and working from home. So we've tried to come back to the idea that the student's social-emotional well-being is our top priority, and the needs of the family is a top priority. So again, we want to pace our work in such a way that they're getting those readiness standards, the high-priority learning content, but they're getting it over time and in a way that they can interact with it, respond to it, turn in assignments and then have meetings with teachers. So we want to do it in a good way that doesn't place stress on the student or the parents because reality is most of these parents have not had to monitor teaching and learning on a day-to-day -day basis. And I'm already getting emails that reflect the stress level of the parents who are, who are saying, I don't know how to do this. And so we're, we're doing everything we can with video support, you know, real time, we have a help desk we've set up for parents. So there's lots of ways we're helping them, but, the pay, but maintaining that pace, as you mentioned, is essential 
across the board for equity and for the sanity, if you will, of the parents. How do you communicate the need to move forward, but also um, letting people know it's okay that we're gonna have some stumbles? So we have just engaged in very authentic, honest and direct conversation. Um, for example, the message I sent to parents Monday night, our first day of online learning, opened with the sentence, today was not perfect and tomorrow will not be either. You know, we have just, we're openly acknowledging the fact that there's going to be mistakes, systems are not going to work well, teach, people are going to be frustrated. And so we're just asking everyone to take a deep breath, step back, and make sure that they're just doing the best they can, even if they don't have a, a master's or you know a degree in education. We want them to be able to feel comfortable just to do what they can. Again, we're focusing on social emotional needs as a top priority, but we are teaching the curriculum. And so with teachers and with staff, and you honestly, you would be amazed at the response we got to a message we sent to staff last week where I just laid out very clearly, here's our expectations of you. Be kind to yourself. Be compassionate to others. And uh, teachers, they just said, you just really took all the anxiety away by acknowledging we're going for good, not perfect, um, that it's okay to make mistakes, we're going to make mistakes, and just to kind of have grace and, and, and patience for other people. I've mentioned to our staff, regularly as people are moving down Maslow's hierarchy of basic needs right now. There's a lot of focus in our community. And frankly, the piece that I want, I keep reminding our teachers and our parents is we have many of our teachers who are in the same position as these other parents. They're having to teach other people's children while they're trying to manage their own child's education. So we, we're acknowledging all of that. And again, that's where the flexibility comes in. It's where just sticking with the plan We've told everyone, stick with the plan, because if you'll do that and then just have, have the grace and compassion toward others, everything's going to be okay. That's also why from the beginning, we've told our community, we are planning long-term. You know, whatever system we put in place, we're gonna take time to design it so it will serve us through the very last day of instruction, whenever that might be, if we're unable to open the school doors again this year. What are some things that have really warmed your heart? What are some bright spots you've seen, um, you know, during this? I think our teachers, we're hearing so many positive things from teachers. I and mean, frankly, our students and our whole community, we're, we're going to capitalize on this crisis because there are transformational change things taking place right now under duress that I think will serve us well long term. But our teachers are quickly realizing some of these tools are remarkable. But last night, I think my heart was most touched. I'm going to get out my phone because I wanted to, to share this with you. It was, um, there's a, I got this from a principal who said that they were, she was moved by it. Uh, a high school student was asked as part of their classroom engagement, what are the benefits of social distancing? Well, they, this student listed five things. Number one, she gets to sleep in, of course, for any teenager. I spend more time with my sisters. I get caught up on shows I haven't watched in a while. I'm using free time to learn a new language. I thought I was very impressed, but the last one was very cool for me as a superintendent. She said, I'm self-studying at a pace that doesn't give me stress, allowing me to actually enjoy the content. 
You know, so we have done so much work with community-based accountability with TPAC, and all of it is focused on the fact we've got to figure out how to have local accountability, and we have to do things in a way that allow us to be a true learning organization, not just to begin the race and press to the finish line to teach the teaks to get ready for the star. And when I've got a young person telling me she's actually enjoying the content because she has the time, that affirms everything we know to be true, that teachers just need more time to teach and allow students to engage with the content in a good, at a good pace. Thank you for joining our podcast. I, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to be with us and, and share some of the good work going on in Fort Bend ISD. Well, thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to visit with you today. That was Charles Dupree, superintendent of Fort Bend ISD. Jill Seiler and Charles Dupree both shared some wonderful insights about their district's experiences during this time of crisis. And we know your districts are doing amazing things for your students and communities, too. We want to hear about them. Share your stories and resources with us at learning at casanet.org. We thank all of you for tuning in to our inaugural episode of the CASA Inspiring Leaders Podcast. Special thanks to Jill Seiler, Charles Dupree, and our thought partners at Thought Exchange. Look for additional resources and updates in our daily newsletter, CASA Daily. And until next time, from all of us here at CASA World Headquarters, stay safe and healthy.